with another episode of Get to Know Your Co. I hope everyone had an excellent week. I'm Eddie Garfin, and this podcast is really born from living in a time of isolation where getting to know our coworkers is just so darn hard. Usually we do this after our weekly all-hands meetings or quarterly socials, but with everything going digital, this is a chance to take a step back and find some more common ground with one another. And maybe, just maybe, find something out about our coworkers that we didn't know in the process. Today, I'm joined by somebody described by his girlfriend as patient, understanding, methodical, and gray-haired. This is Blake Holland. Welcome, Blake. Thanks, Eddie. It's an honor to be here. Uh, quite the introduction, I guess, by my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, we got a credit where credit is due, Sydney. Uh, excellent writing there. Just like uh, Brian co-produced uh, last week's episode with Jack, Sydney gets that uh, co-production with uh, this episode, too. Awesome. <laughs> so I'd like to start... Usually we start with um, your, your depot journey, but you have so much that we can talk about even before you got to depot. So I would love to talk a little bit about um, sort of the path that you took in your education. You studied business in college, but in high school, you had a completely different field of interest. Can you speak to your love of marine biology? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so marine biology was something that I always grew up wanting to do. And I think it starts back when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in Dunwoody, Georgia, just about, you know, 20 minutes away from the office, uh, the SSC in Atlanta. And we had this awesome creek in our backyard. And as a kid, I would not spend much time inside. I spent, you know, every sunny day outside uh, in that creek, whether it was trying to catch the minnows that were swimming around or just like exploring all the nooks and crannies that led up to the lake just up the hill. Um, and that really just kind of created this, this passion for, for water and for all the life that kind of lives in water. And, you know, as I got older, we started taking beach trips uh, and we would go to this place that I still love to this day. It's called Seabrook Island, South Carolina. Um, it's about 30 minutes south of Charleston on the, on the South Carolina coast. Um, and, you know, most of my family would just kind of hang out on the beach, throw the ball around, have a good time in the waves. Uh, but I was always off, uh, whether it was in the ocean, fishing, looking around, or really where my, my true kind of love um, of the ocean comes from is the salt marshes. And so I would spend hours, like the whole day, I'd get up early, I'd hop on my bike, I'd take my crab net, my fishing nets, my poles, and I'd go down to the salt marshes, and I would just try to catch anything and everything that I could. Uh, and it just fascinated me. And it still does to this day. And so uh, for the longest time, I really thought that that is the career path that I wanted to take. And, and that's kind of what I started exploring as I got into high school. And, and so, so uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I got into uh, high school and it, my high school gave us the opportunity to do an internship program our junior and senior year. And so my junior year, um, the Georgia Aquarium had been open for uh, maybe a couple of years at that point. Um, and I got the opportunity to go work there in the summer. And so I spent six weeks at the Georgia Aquarium uh, and I was super excited about it because I thought it was going to be like this awesome thing where I was going to go swim with the dolphins and like check out the whale sharks. But uh, unfortunately, it ended up being a summer where I guess they just had so many applicants. They didn't know what to do with everybody. And it's an unpaid internship. So um, I was really more so a greeter at the front, uh, kind of you know letting people know where the different exhibits were and kind of just the different uh, things that they could do 
inside the aquarium. So it wasn't quite as fascinating as I thought it was going to be, but it was still kind of cool to see stuff a little bit behind the scenes here and there. So recognizing that you never had that chance to kind of swim with many of the creatures that you hope to on a vacation or anything like that, have you gone swimming with dolphins? I know that's a pretty common um, activity that you can do on like some of the islands. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've been to Mexico a couple of times. And so I, I gotten the opportunity to do the 30 minutes swim with the dolphins. They do a couple of, uh, and that'd be super, and that was super cool. Um, but I'd love to do the whale sharks. I think that's just like the next level of, uh, of kind of, you know, being out there with something huge. I would, I would imagine that whale sharks aren't dangerous. Like for, I'm not by, by any means somebody who's really in touch with the marine ecosystem because there is half of the name is whale and half of the name is shark. So it sounds kind of dangerous, but I don't imagine they're dangerous, right? Yeah. So it's super misleading. Uh, whale sharks actually can't eat anything larger than uh, like microscopic krill. They have uh, a giant mouth, but it's filtered by these gills behind it. And uh, so they can only take in these tiny little microorganisms and they, they eat, it's something crazy, like 10,000 pounds of this stuff a day uh, out in the wild. But no, so if you were to get inside of a whale shark's mouth, they would spit you right back up. You wouldn't be touched. That's reassuring. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go <laughs> swim with the whale sharks too now. There you go. So you have this love of marine biology, and then you end up studying business in university, or uh, as the Americans call it, college. So why the switch? How did that kind of come to pass? Well, yeah, and, and, I, and I will say, I'll preface it, um, you know, that was my junior year internship, and I got the same opportunity again my senior year to do something different, and this time it was uh, during the spring semester, and so, um, you know, we only had a couple of classes in that spring semester, and so I got to spend half of my day at this place uh, in Roswell called the Chattahoochee Nature Center, and for those that don't know, uh, it's a wildlife rehab program, and so basically it's, it's all of these uh, different birds native to kind of the southeast of the U.S., that were either hit by a car uh, as they were flying across the road or found injured somewhere in the wild. And they're taken into this uh, sanctuary essentially where they can be rehabbed back to health. And so um, I got a really cool opportunity to do something that I never thought I would want to do in a million years. And, and uh, so I showed up at this place on, on day one and they told me that I would be responsible for rehabbing American bald eagles. And so I spent uh, the better part of eight weeks showing up every day doing the dirty tasks to, uh, to rehab bald eagles. And, and I don't think, you know, people see these creatures and you're like, wow, that's so beautiful. But until you're face to face with one of these things, I don't think you realize the magnitude of just how big a bald eagle is and just how strong they are too. And so um, one, of the th one of the things I remember super clear is one of the tasks we had to do getting there every morning is they get their breakfast and so what they get is three to four massive frozen rats. And so you have to go into their cage and you approach them very slowly, obviously, and, and you over time earn their respect and trust, but you still keep your distance and you throw them this, this massive, you know, six, eight inch long rat, and they just throw it back in, in one hunch. Um, it is incredible to see and also incredibly terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I'm, I'm sure that's uh for those that have gone to an all-you-can-eat buffet with me, a similar amount of fear when they've sat across from me and seen me <laughs> go to town on some of that food. Okay, that's, that's, that's incredible because I think, I can't think of anything more patriotic than helping to rehab a bald eagle. In Canada, we have, um, we have Canadian geese. There's, there's a different relationship between Canadians and, and the Canadian geese and Americans and their bald eagles. I think 
uh, with, with your side, there's a lot of respect probably between the two species, uh, between our two species, there's a lot of contempt. Uh, <laughs> they basically just crap everywhere um, and make sidewalks unwalkable. But, uh, yeah. you know, to, to each country their own, we'll say. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it was an, it was an awesome experience. Uh, one that I probably wouldn't choose to do the rest of my life. It uh, is a lot of work and it's gross, frankly. Um, you know, they, they poop a lot too. Uh, but it was a really, really cool experience. Totally. That, that must have uh, that must have been awesome to have on your resume at some point, working with uh, some bald eagles. Yeah, it's a, it's a great fun fact. I think I've used it at Home Depot a couple of times. Uh, when you go around a room of people and, you know, someone says, like, I was a cheerleader in high school or, you know, something else. And, and no offense to those people, by the way. But uh, it's a great fun fact to use just because I can pretty much guarantee no one else in the room has done that. Definitely not. So turning your attention now to your time at UOG, Go dogs. Um, dogs. Obviously you had a number of amazing experiences there. Just a couple that, that, you know, I, I sort of learned about where you're, you're being a mentor for the shop of the bulldog program. You were with Habitat for Humanity, but uh, there's another experience that you kind of mentioned as being the most memorable uh, for you during your college experience. What was that? Yeah, absolutely. So my junior year, I was given the opportunity to do a foreign study abroad exchange program in Spain. Um, and I will preface and say that Athens is an amazing college town and anyone who's gone to Georgia uh, will agree with me wholeheartedly. But the opportunity to spend six months in a different country across the pond uh, was something I'll remember forever. And it was just, the experience was unforgettable. Um, you know, Spain is such a different culture than so many other European cities um, for many reasons, but some of the highlights that just stick out to me. Um, the walkability in the city was amazing. Uh, coming from Atlanta, it's a very suburban sprawled city. You take your car to get everywhere. So, um, you know, when I was over there, I stayed in a Spanish dorm uh, with about 10 other kids from UGA, but also an entire school full of um, students from Valencia. And so um, it was amazing because we got to be able to, uh, you know, walk to all your classes, you walk to all the restaurants, you walk to the nightlife, things like that. Um, and that's just something I had never experienced before. The food is phenomenal. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think the American restaurants where they serve tapas even do it justice. But it, it's so interesting because Spaniards eat all day long. I mean, they seriously eat from the second the sun gets up until the sun goes down and, and long after. Um, but they're all in such great shape. And I think it's because public transportation is seldom used. I mean, I, I knew people that would walk, you know, 15, 25 miles a day. And that was just part of their normal routine to get from A to B to C. Um, but the, the um, tapas in Spain are incredible. Um, and you have all these different little barrios where um, you have these family owned shops and they serve the, the meat and the cheese and the, the house made red wine. Um, and the best part is it's all so cheap. I mean, you could get a full plate of cheese, a full plate of, of sliced meats and call it two bottles of, of uh, red wine for like 10 euro. And when you're splitting that among your two, three, four friends there, it's like a super cheap night out. And it was awesome. Yeah, that, that sounds incredible. I know uh, when, you're, when you're looking for a lunch or a dinner in Atlanta or Toronto, good luck finding anything for $10 per person, let alone uh, 10 euro split across four people exactly it just so, doesn't happen exactly so that was great on a, on a college budget uh, that definitely helped uh, in the long run 
And then uh, the other thing too is the nightlife, right? Uh, the way Spaniards work is they eat dinner really late. So dinner comes around 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And what you do is you kind of let that sit for an hour. You go back and some will take a nap. Um, others will just stay up. And then you leave to go to the bars around midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And the bars or the clubs, I guess, is what they're referred to. They stay open from one till sunrise. And so most of the clubs actually have skylights in them. And so, uh, you know, you're kind of dancing all night long, doing your thing, and then you see the sun start to come up and that's when the lights come on in the club and they're like, okay, everybody, uh, you know, time to go home, time to close out. Um, and the craziest thing is I expected all of my Spaniard counterparts to just go back to their rooms and sleep it off. They all just, they hop in a coffee shop real quick. They pick up an espresso and they go straight to class. It is the wildest thing. Wow. What, what time do bars and clubs close in Atlanta? I think 2 a.m. is probably the typical time. Okay. I think for Toronto, we have, I want to say, I don't think I've ever made it that late, but I want to say that two o'clock is last call maybe. And then at three o'clock, it's everybody get out, lights are on. Um, so the experience that I had similar to kind of your, your Spain clubbing experience is when I was in Israel, they have a similar nightlife where the people, I don't know if they're, they're running on batteries or, or what that situation is, but they, they're up for 36 straight hours and then they take an hour nap and then they're back at it again. So it's just such a, to, to what you're saying, such a different lifestyle uh, in different areas of the world. Uh, so it's, it's very, it must have been amazing to kind of experience such a, such a different culture. Um, and, and one question I have for you around uh, the tapas in particular is if somebody had not gone to Spain and they were planning this trip, what is the one tapa, tapa, tapas? I don't know if tapas, tapas is tapas. plural. The yeah. one tapa that they must try in Spain. Oh, that's so hard. I know because they're small plates, so you probably get like six or seven anyways together. But yeah. this is a choose choose only one scenario. Gosh, I you know I don't know. There's there's so many different uh, small seafood dishes, and I'm struggling to remember the names of any of them. I have visual cues in my mind that I can think of. Um, but they're all so different. Um, and then you have like your classic Iberian ham, uh, which you see uh, if you walk into a shop, it's just that big leg of, of ham that's sitting on the, the, the spike and then they come and shave it uh, off onto your plate. Um, I feel like that's iconic, um, but you, I, I really don't think you can nail it down to one specific thing. And that's the beauty of tapas, right? You've, even if it's just you and someone else or even just yourself, you can go and order four and five things and that's kind of the equivalent of a meal. Exactly. It's like um, our, the equivalent for us of sharing apps, but we're seven to 12 layers worse than tapas. Exactly. So continuing on this theme of, of food and drinks, maybe we'll pivot to drinks a little bit here. You, uh, you have a couple interesting hobbies with respect to alcohol. The first one is your experience bartending. Um, do you have any stories or kind of wacky customers that you served when you were a bartender uh, during your college days? Yeah, I think, so So the way bartending works uh, at UGA is you, it's a hierarchy. It's kind of a respect system. So um, after my freshman year of college, I didn't want to go back to Alpharetta for the summer. So I decided to stay in Athens and I needed to make money. And so uh, a friend of mine who was a year older had said, why don't you come be a doorman at the bar? And so uh, I ended up going to work for this place in Athens called Buddha Bar, uh, which is a kind of a funky bar and a little bit different than the others. It serves um, 
kind of more Asian inspired drinks and they have the, uh, you know, the, the whole system where you put um, a shot glass on top of chopsticks on top of a pint glass and you bang it uh, to let it fall in. But anyways, I worked the door uh, for that summer. Um, and that was pretty interesting just because you deal with every person and not only that gets let into the bar, but also those that don't. And so um, nothing too kind of crazy came out of that, but you get the classic situation of blonde girls walking up with black hair um, on, on their IDs and handing it to you. And then you say like, Hey, you know, I, I can't let you in. This isn't you. And they're like, what do you mean? It isn't me. And I'm like, you know, you're holding it up next to their face and they get all frustrated. Um, but as you know, so like doorman wasn't too bad. And then as you, you work your way up, um, after about six months, you make your way to barback and barback is just the equivalent of sprinting around the bar for six to eight hours a night, making sure that there's clean dishware and that the countertops are clean. Um, and stuff like that. And really no crazy stories there, but that is like one of the hardest I have worked in my entire life. I mean, you are, you are sweating the entire time. Um, you're sprinting back and forth. You've got screaming customers, you know, saying like, uh, you know, customers are always confused as to why they can't order a drink from you because as a bar back, you're legally not allowed to serve. And so they get really frustrated. And then you've got your bartenders who are working their butts off. Um, and so you're just trying to help everybody and it's kind of a lose lose scenario, but you do that for another six months. And so I would say kind of somewhere in the middle of my, my sophomore year of college, I got promoted up to bartending and that feels like the big leagues. It's like, okay, I made it. Like I'm in the major leagues now. You're a mixologist now. I'm a mixologist in, in a college bar. So it's, it's like a tier lower, but at the time I felt like I was on top of the world. Um, and yeah, the bartending, you deal with every single different type of person. And, and then, you know, in a college town like Athens, you throw a game day in and, uh, Game days are fun uh, when you're not bartending, but when you are, they're so much work, right? I mean, Athens, I think, doubles or triples in size and population on those days. And they're great days to work because that's when the money really pours in. You're going to make great tips, but you also have to put up with every different type of person under the sun. And so uh, the amount of times I've been screamed at or had a drink thrown at me or, you know, situations like that is endless, but it's all just kind of part of the gig. You, you just laugh it off. Exactly. It's part of being in the big leagues is sometimes you're going to get hit by a, a pitch and you just got to take it and jog on over to first base. Exactly. So if, if somebody crafted a cocktail in your honor and you go, you go to the menu and it's the Blake Holland, what would be some of the key ingredients that this cocktail has in it? I like the sound of that. It would be interesting to have a cocktail uh, directly named after yourself. Um, I'm a big bourbon guy. So to me, uh, you can't go wrong with an old fashioned. I particularly love a smoked, a smoked old fashioned. So, um, we have this little gun, um, at our place and you could just drop like uh, different types of, of wood chips in it. Um, and, and then you just kind of flip the glass upside down and you smoke it for about 30 seconds and then you kind of make the drink. But, um, an old fashioned is classic. It will, it will never die. Um, and I could, I could sip on those all night. So you like the, the smoky old fashioned, you got the, the, uh, the bourbon, you got the cherry, the, the orange, I guess, is it zest or is it an actual slice in there? It's, it's a, it's a peel, right? So you've got the, the bourbon, the bitters, uh, the sugar cube, sometimes just the cube where you can kind of stir it in. Um, and then you have the maraschino cherry and the orange zest or the orange peel, which, uh, you have to rub around the rim for the Ah. aromatics. Aromatics. Very important. (laughs) Very, very important for beverages. We eat that's, with our eyes and we drink with our, our nose, I guess. Exactly. That's next level bartending right there. 
<laughs> I, I just learned something right now. I need to buy a small hand torch, uh, to put some wood <laughs> chips in and, and smoke my glasses before I make drinks now. There you go. Uh, so we got, a, we got a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario here. Um, what came first, your, your bartending experience or your uh, foray into crafting your own beers? Definitely the bartending. Um, crafting my own beers came my senior year of college. Uh, my roommates and I were just kind of looking to mix it up. Um, one of my roommates in particular, Parker, had gotten really big into it. He was also a bartender. Uh, and we decided, uh, you know, it's actually not that expensive to do on your own. Let's see if we can try it out. And so one day we went to the, we had a craft beer store, believe it or not, where you can buy, um, you can buy all different, you know, ranges of malts and grains and things of that nature. And then also all of the equipment that goes with it. And so um, it's actually relatively inexpensive as things go to kind of brew your own beer. You really only need uh, a kettle and then um, a couple fermenting tanks and then a little bit of equipment that transfers the liquid from one vessel to the next. Um, but it kind of spawned this, this cool idea, you know, craft beer was booming. We had several in Athens that we loved to visit. Uh, and it was just kind of this idea of, you know, can we do it better? Uh, the short answer was no, but it was fun <laughs> to try. <laughs> um, it is, you know, brewing is such an interesting process and I have so much more respect for, uh, brewmasters as they're coined, uh, now that I've done it. Um, the worst part about brewing beer is it takes anywhere from, you know, if you're making a lighter beer, it could take four weeks. If you're making a heavier stout or a porter, it could be up to 10 or 12. But the worst part is you can so easily skunk a batch and skunking a batch just means that you've ruined it. It's, it's not drinkable. Um, and so, uh, we did that, uh, at least once for, you know, and you, you probably fill up 30 beer bottles worth of beer. And so once you crack open the first one and it just tastes terrible, you just know the rest are bad. Uh, and that's a pretty bad feeling. So, so that's, I mean, that's, that's awfully sad. You know, you're looking forward to this beer that you've poured your, not literally blood, sweat and tears into, but very <laughs> figuratively blood, sweat and tears into, and then you crack open a celebratory drink and, uh, and it's skunked. So that's, that's the downside. What was uh, maybe the biggest success or uh, the moment that you're most proud of in your, in your beer brewing days? I think the, f the first time we brewed a batch, we, um, we didn't try any of it before we uh, kind of decided to give it to friends and stuff. And we actually held a little party at our place. And so we had like 15 people over and we were super proud of it. Um, and we all kind of opened it around the same time. And thinking back on it, we should have been like, oh my gosh, why didn't we try this out before we invited all these people over? But it was actually a really good beer. And so uh, that kind of got us thinking like, oh, we're good at this. We can keep doing this. And that's when the skunked batches uh, started flowing in. But the first batch was perfect. And that was a huge confidence boost to keep doing it the rest of the year. Would you ever go back into that business and try, try your hand at brewing again? Or are those days pretty much behind you? I wouldn't say they're behind me. I think uh, if the capital was there and uh, I kept kind of learning more about it, I think it'd be super interesting to get back into. I mean, that's, I've always had this pipe dream. Um, my dad's a huge craft beer guy too. And so um, he and I love to visit different breweries in and around Atlanta and, and the Southeast in general. And anytime we travel outside of the Southeast, it, we always make it a point to stop in and, and try a couple. Um, and so I think it's always been a pipe dream for he and I to open up a brewery together. So if we were able to make that happen, I mean, you can't ask for much more than that. A father and son brewing company, sign me up. Exactly. I'll buy some beer from you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so let's turn our attention now to actually arriving at Depot. 
Um, what drew you to Big Orange initially? Yeah, so um, I guess it was my senior year of college. Uh, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, so, I, so I came into UGA as an ecology major, and then uh, inevitably I found out that I was terrible at chemistry. And this was like the intro to chemistry, that probably the easiest one of the bunch. Uh, and I just, I couldn't put, you know, one and one together in my mind. Um, and so I decided to switch to business, which later became marketing. Um, and I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with that. And I thought the marketing classes were interesting uh, and I loved the creative aspect of it. Um, but I just was kind of sitting there like, you know, I can apply to all these different companies all I want, but I kind of want to have something to, to grab onto. And um, one of my friends who was a year older had actually started working for Home Depot and he and I were chatting uh, one afternoon. He said, you should really check out this merchandise planner role. Uh, within Home Depot. And he was doing it at the time. He was about six months in. And so, uh, you know, I just took a deeper look at it. And uh, one of the things that I've always loved about the MP role is that it touches almost every point in the organization. So it's the perfect role for someone who doesn't necessarily know what they want to do with their life because you get to learn all these little tidbits um, across the company. And so um, the rest is kind of history. You know, I applied uh, through him and went through the interviewing process and, and landed the job. And I'm sure that Jack and Miles can uh, really attest to the challenges that MPs face throughout their, their career. I'm sure they differ from, uh, you know, your first six months in seat to maybe a year and a half in seat, but maybe share with people that are listening that don't really know uh, what an MP's day-to-day looks like and what some of the challenges they face frequently uh, might be. Yeah, definitely. So the MP is often referred to as the front doorstep to the organization. Um, And really like one of the biggest tasks surrounding the MP is this influx of requests from different areas of the company, but also from your supplier base and knowing what to do with them. So um, I would say it's so critical for the MP to really establish those connections early on with all of the different cross-functional teams they have, because you're getting hounded by suppliers, you're getting hounded by field teams, uh, your merchant, as well as all these different cross-functional teams asking you for different stuff. And, and oftentimes it's as simple as just redirecting that email or redirecting that phone call to someone who can handle it. And I think that took me a couple of months to figure out, you know, you want to, you're put in this role and you want to be the per, the point person and you think that you're responsible for all of these different things. And in some aspects you are, but uh, most of the time it's really just about having that relationship to be able to pick up the phone and say, Hey, I've got this person on the line. They need help with this can you take it over? And um, the more you build those relationships, the, the easier it gets um, and you're able to pass people through. But to answer your question about what an MP really does, I mean, you're the merchant's right-hand man. So you're looking at, um, you know, your, your eventual goal is to improve your business and whether that's growing sales, improving margin, increasing turns, you're doing that through looking at your current assortment and identifying any gaps that might be there, whether there's opportunity to maybe bring in new product or exit product that's not doing well. Uh, you're looking at pricing structure, whether that's through line structure or just bulk pricing or everyday low pricing. Um, and, and, and all of these different things just to kind of make sure the wheels are turning. And so um, the MP is the execution side of the business. So oftentimes you're, you're getting the strategy from the merchant and you're putting it into play and making sure that it kind of goes down smoothly. The merchant being the judge and jury and the MP being uh, really the executioner in the sense. Always. So reflecting on your time 
as an MP, I'm sure, you know, you've had your hand in a number of different PLRs. You've worked with so many different suppliers, so many different internal stakeholders. What moment or outcome are you most proud of? And, and why are you most proud of that, that moment? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple moments I think of, but one of the coolest things, um, so my second year of being an MP, uh, I really knew what I was doing. The day-to-day tasks were uh, much easier at that point, and you were able to kind of expand and do a little bit more analysis um, versus the previous year when you're kind of just trying to keep your head above water. And um, my merchant, uh, we had a great relationship. Rick Aguilar is a fantastic merchant. He's now in, in D26P. Shout out, Rick. Um, shout out, Rick. Um, he kind of gave me the opportunity to look at the driveway sealers business uh, within concrete. And so uh, that is a business that is asphalt based as opposed to concrete for the rest of the class. And it's something that um, hadn't really been looked at in a couple of years. We inherited it from another merchant, um, maybe one or two years before. And so I got the opportunity to kind of do a full deep dive of the business, uh, you know, bring the vendor in, learn more about the category and then eventually provide all these different assortment and pricing recommendations to kind of improve the business. And so um, I spent probably two to three months working through what I wanted to do. I eventually got to present that out to uh, not only my merchant, but my MVP and and other leadership and those plans went into effect. And so I would say from a, from a rewarding aspect, it was so cool to see, you know, things that I thought would be great improvements actually, go from pen to paper uh, and hit the stores. And then, you know, you get into the next selling season and you see field, uh, field reps and, and, and members of the field send notes about how, how cool and interesting and how they love the changes. Uh, and so I think that was just the most rewarding piece, just seeing your thoughts get executed and, and executed for the better. Absolutely. That's, uh, it sounds like it's part and parcel with that role. You get um, a lot of requests and a lot of people that you have to, to work with to get things done. But when you do get things done, you really feel the outcomes and you get to share in the wins uh, with those suppliers and with the people that actually execute those changes. Absolutely. It's, it's super rewarding in that aspect. So no, no uh, career, especially as an MP, from what I understand, uh, is scot-free. And so <laughs> last time when I spoke with Jack, she mentioned that every MP has that oh crap moment. Uh, what was your oh crap moment? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this happened in the first six months of being an MP. So there's a little bit of forgiveness, but in concrete, we sell boots and they're, they're really no different than rain boots, but we call them concrete boots. And it's because when you're working with wet concrete, it often kind of splashes up and you really don't want, you know, hard dried concrete on your legs. So anyways, um, the way concrete boots work is we sell them in white boots and black boots. And there's a very limited area of the country that prefers white boots to black boots. And I still, to this day, couldn't tell you why, but anyways, uh, I just remember, you know, um, my merchant saying like, Hey, you know, they're low on this. I need you to get with IPR and make sure we ship, you know, a couple of truckloads of boots to this region. And so long story short, um, I didn't take a close enough look at the data and I ended up shipping black boots to uh, South Florida, which exclusively sells white boots. And this is, you know, one of those regions where they will not use black boots. Like they refuse to go on the job with black boots. So I think I, I sent like $150,000 worth of black boots down to South Florida. Um, 
And I had that oh crap moment when I got a call from my merchant saying, you know, like, what is this? This is not what I told you to send. Um, and so, uh, yeah, those are, those are good moments. Those are nice, uh, heart attack moments where your heart just kind of sinks to your butt and, uh, you think your life's about to end. I think you're about to be thrown out the window. So, um, that was a fun moment. I tried to have as few of those as possible after doing that. Yeah, I can, I can see why it's, <laughs> it's interesting that there's a very small portion of the country that for whatever reason, probably I would imagine style motivated. They just like their white boots and they will not wear a black boot. Yeah. And maybe it's something to do with the heat. I don't know. Black tends to conduct more heat. Right. And so maybe because it was Southern California and South Florida, maybe the extreme heat white reflects better. I don't know. Regardless, I sent boots to the wrong place. Uh, it was a huge mess up. We were fortunately were able to get it resolved with the vendor, but it definitely came with some grievances. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. When you, when you said grieve, grievances, you reminded me of uh, in Seinfeld when they celebrate uh, Festivus and it's uh, the airing of grievances at dinner, <laughs> but I, w- I won't go into detail around that. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which I've started to ask more and more because I think it's really important to uh, give a shout out to the people that have really helped you throughout your career and influenced your career. So I was wondering who at Depot has had the biggest impact on your career so far, recognizing that there are probably over a dozen people that have really, really helped you along. Definitely. And I think, um, you know, Max Gray, who I, who was kind of my into the company, uh, was a fantastic resource when I was still in college trying to figure things out. So I'll always props to him for kind of giving me that door in. Um, when I got into the company, I was super blessed with the leadership around me and I could name dozens of people to your point, but I think, um, really just two shout outs, one to Rick Aguilar, who we just talked about the mer- my merchant who used to be the merchant for concrete. Um, and then my MVP at the time, Jim Recor, who is now the MVP in D 28 I. Um, and I think honestly, just giving me the chance to come in as a fresh kid out of college and taking on such a huge business and so much responsibility and having the patience to give me a couple of months to kind of get up and running and learn the system. And then really just empowering me over those two years. I mean, I think so much of my success is attributed to the fact that there was trust to say, Hey, why don't you go out and do this? Give this a try. Um, And if you mess up, then you mess up. It's, you know, there are so many things in life that are reversible decisions versus irreversible decisions, right? And so I think that was their attitude with me on a lot of things. And obviously the more uh, time you spend in the role, the better you get at stuff. But I really just thank them for that opportunity. And I think it's made a huge impact in, in how I think about all of these new roles that I've faced since. Absolutely. I, th- I think it's, it's so lucky to land in a position where you have leadership that's supportive, knowledgeable, Uh, and puts their faith in you. And like you mentioned, you're coming straight out of college. You don't have really any work experience. I mean, you've stared death in the face with those bald eagles, but uh, (laughs) so that's a, that's a little bit of a a leg up on some of the other MPs I'm sure starting out, Uh, but it it must be really, really impactful. And uh, that's something that I've, uh, I've been blessed with as well. Yeah. It makes all the difference in the world. And so we'll take flight from, from the home Depot conversation Look at you. To, right? To a, to a conversation <laughs> about nature. Let's get back to nature, Blake. Let's, let's do talk it. about, let's talk about some of the things that you like to do. Obviously you were always uh, an outdoorsy type of person uh, in the Creek, the salt marshes. Uh, you also hike and kayak these days uh, for the people in Atlanta that are thinking that 
you know, quarantine or uh, COVID is a good opportunity to reconnect with nature. Where are some good spots to go hiking or kayaking? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I will say Atlanta does not have the most direct access to these, ty- to, to these types of things. So you kind of have to uh, search for it. But a majority of my outdoor access comes from the North Georgia mountains, or really they're just kind of hills. But um, so my, my family has always been super outdoorsy. And uh, probably five, six years ago, my parents bought a cabin up in the Big Canoe neighborhood of North Georgia. Uh, and that's been amazing because it's kind of given me access to um, all these different lakes and these great trails up there. And that's kind of made my love of hiking and, and kayaking uh, expand even more. Um, but if you're in the city, you know, there's some great spots even near the Atlanta office. Um, you know, Roswell has all these different nature trails along the Chattahoochee River um, that are great spots. There's not a lot of vertical hiking, uh, not a lot of incline hiking, but there's some great river hiking. Um, and if you're good on a kayak and you can go down the Chattahoochee river, it gets a little dicey at certain points, but, um, it's definitely fun. And, and you're, you're a dog dad to uh, a one-year-old lab named Jasper. Does he get to go on these, these voyages and excursions with you or is yeah, he left she at does. home? Or is she, she left at home? Uh, she, she comes on as many as we can. Um, so she's actually a little bit lab, but she didn't discover that until a couple of months ago. And so. I've been wanting to get her on the water. Uh, we got her last September when she was 12 weeks old. Uh, now she's just over a year and she's finally discovering that she can swim and that she likes to be in the water. And so um, over the past few months, uh, she will go on the kayak with me. She'll hang out on the front where there's absolutely nowhere to hang out. But uh, I guess she just has incredible balance. And it's really cute. She'll sit on the front of the kayak and kind of have this like Lewis and Clark Voyager look to her as she looks out whether it's on the river or on a lake um, out at the horizon. But uh, yeah, she comes on all our hikes with us. She's a great outdoorsy dog. uh, And I I love having her by my side. Do you feel more like, like a real explorer when she's kind of your pointer dog at the front of the kayak? I just want to know what she's looking at. I mean, she is always fixed on something and I, you know, I just want to know if it's like a squirrel on the bank or if she knows something that I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I've had, I had a dog in the past and you always have, this this conundrum where either they're really easily diverted from an attention perspective and you're like, ah, it's, it's, it's a squirrel, it's, it's nothing big. But then on the other hand, they have really keen senses of hearing and smell. So are they smelling a bear that's on the banks and we just can't see it? Right. So there's that, there's that like duality there. So one of these days, who knows, maybe she will save me from a bear attack. I hope it never comes to that, but I'm <laughs> sure I'm sure she would save you. Um, there's like a 90% chance she'll save you. And there's a 10% chance that her love of swimming will enable her to escape, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) and leave me behind. (laughs) Exactly. So I don't want to get too philosophical because, um, try to keep it light, but have you learned anything from raising this, this majestic creature? Is there anything that maybe you've discovered uh, about yourself, about your relationship with your girlfriend, about how you may want to (laughs) raise kids, if that's a choice you make in the future? Uh, yeah, all all questions here. I think I think every emotion goes through you at some point over the course of of raising a, a true puppy. Um, I would say that the first one that stands out to me is patience. Um, I did I did a little bit of research before we actually got her, trying to you know figure out how to navigate those waters. And I I honestly thought potty training would be a two to three month max thing. And it's one of those things that took us about nine months to get through, and we still have the occasional accident. Um, 
that is something that is very, very frustrating. And so um, in Atlanta, my old apartment had carpet floors everywhere. And so as you can imagine, um, accidents on carpet are not fun, not fun to clean up and not fun to deal with in general. And so um, when that happens two, three, four times a week, when you first get a dog, it is super, super frustrating. Uh, but I mean, honestly, you know, yes, that part is bad, but having it, any other moment of having a dog makes up for any negative thing that could ever happen. But yes, there were definitely so many points like that where I was incredibly frustrated. Totally. The, the unconditional love and the, the joy that you see in your dog's face when they, when they see you. And it's every time too. It's not like they get sick of you after a while. It's every single time they see you, it's like you're their favorite person and it's their first time seeing you in months. Yeah. Jasper does this thing where we call it happy peeing. So like if we're gone for a couple of hours and we come back, we have to be really careful to stand at the door for a second before we open it to let her calm down. Otherwise she just starts dancing and she'll just pee. She'll pee everywhere. She's so excited to see us. <laughs> Is that a common thing with puppies? Probably. right. I, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. have to keep that in mind if I ever decide uh, to adopt a pup. You should get a dog. I, I highly advocate for it. Got to get my own place first, man. Yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, let's jump over. I know we're we're getting a little short on time here. Let's jump over to the rapid fire segment of the show. Okay. Just gonna throw darts here, and you just you make some quick decisions. Just think on your feet here. Let's do it. All right. Coffee or tea? Tea. I'm not a coffee drinker. Interesting. Sweet or salty snacks? Salty. Super strength or super speed? Ooh, super strength. The Braves, Cowboys, or Dogs? Ooh, that's harsh. Uh, I will take my dogs, but I'm a diehard Braves fan. Good to know, good to know. Uh, <laughs> and also, sorry that Jack added you as a Cowboys fan earlier. Yeah, I had no yeah. control over it. I was uh, super bummed to hear that, uh, but uh, is what it is. <laughs> well, you've shown everyone you're a great guy. So the last question that we have is, does pineapple belong on pizza? Absolutely, 100% yes. Huge proponent of it. Even though I am, I cannot have pizza technically. I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. When I do find like a dairy-free pizza, uh, I will 100% throw pineapple on it. It is the best topping on a pizza. I'm sure. I'm sure Neil knows your struggles. Uh, he is lactose intolerant as well. And my my sister has some lactose-related grievances. So she she's found like some good alternative cheeses, and some of them actually taste like cheese. I was I was pretty shocked by that. Yeah, there's, there's a ton of alternatives. And I will say, like, if there were ever a time in history to develop a lactose intolerance, this is a good time. I mean, I drink oat milk, and it tastes exactly like regular milk. I, uh, Trader Joe's sells a lot of great products. Uh, I don't know if you guys have them in Toronto, but... We don't, but we make trips to the U.S. specifically for some of the things that Trader Joe's <laughs> makes. They, I, I don't know why no one has thought to, to bring it over here. It's, it's, it's like a pilgrimage to, to Trader Joe's. It is the best grocery store, hands down, uh, and they have a ton of great op uh, options for people who can't do dairy. So, like, you're, I, I have this uh, this shredded cashew cheese in my fridge right now, and it tastes exactly like mozzarella. So, it's a good time. Absolutely. I, I've started to love cashew cheese, too, and I never thought in my life that I would say that. <laughs> well, you know what? That's all the time we have uh, today. Blake, thanks so much for joining Thanks so much for having me, Eddie. This was a blast. Yeah, and, and to everybody that, that listened, thank you so much. Uh, if any of the topics today 
piqued your interest, if you want to get a little bit more outdoorsy or you want to talk about some of the marine animals uh, that you want to learn a little bit more about, I'm sure Blake is happy to oblige uh, and continue the conversation. So from Atlanta to Canada, I hope everyone enjoys their weekend. Uh, we really got to be enjoying these weekends, guys, with every day seeming to blend into one another. And until next time, I'm Eddie Garfin, and this has been Get to Know Your Co.